You know, it seems uh, that evil always stalks us in pairs. And what I mean by this is that, as our scripture reading tells us, we who believe walk a narrow path. And our enemy is always trying to draw us or push us or, or whatever best suits his purpose off that path to one side or the other. Uh, That same force is at work when the unbeliever begins turning to God. He or she may find themselves entangled in legalism. That's what happened to me when I first came to Christ. I found myself in a legalistic church embracing its teachings. And I had to learn learn an awful lot from that. Or the opposite of that may happen. The person may find themselves in an environment of uh, what theologians call antinomianism, where it, and there seems to be no restraints at all, where, well, almost anything goes. And a person who is escaping from either one of those twin dangers finds themselves heading almost irresistibly in the opposite direction as if they were caught in a kind of a swing of a pendulum. And so they must resist straying off the path onto the other side. And and those twin dangers demonstrate for us that the only safe way to navigate this life It's to walk with Christ every day. It is a narrow path, but when you walk that path, you don't walk it alone. The Savior goes there with you. He is your constant companion. And when you do walk that path, you discover something that you didn't expect, that the world doesn't know, though the Scripture tells us it's so. But in walking that path, you find real freedom. All of our lives we have been enslaved by sin, and yet when we keep to that narrow path, we escape its control, and we discover a freedom that we were made for. As Galatians says, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Like one who has some talent in music or sports or some other uh, discipline and who works hard, they begin to discover a kind of a freedom and ability to do things that at one time they had only dreamed of and all the joy that comes from doing those things. Such is the wonder of keeping to that narrow path. Now the text we're going to look at today warns us against straying off the path into almost opposite dangers. And today we find ourselves once again in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, where we're going to be looking at a relatively small section of Scripture, verses 16 through 18. So I want to invite you to join me there. Of course, you can follow along on the screens on either side of me. And what we're going to see here, and, and what we saw last time we were together, is that we learned from Solomon that in the scheme of things, wisdom, real wisdom, wisdom that keeps God in sight is the best way for us to approach this life. He told us that there was power and wisdom. And then when you add to that what he had previously said about wisdom being more valuable than gold, you get a pretty good idea of what Solomon thought about wisdom. And yet in the verses that we're going to look at next, you might wonder if even Solomon thought that wisdom is all that it's cracked up to be. In fact, in in 
these three verses taken together, they are so misunderstood by so many that some people use them to justify keeping a little bit of sin in their lives. Now let me leave the passage, and I'm going to make some comments as I do, and you'll see just what I mean. We'll begin in verse 16. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Now, it sounds like Solomon is saying here that if you are too righteous or too wise, for that matter, you'll end up hurting yourself. You'll end up destroying yourself. So let me ask you, do you think that's what he's saying? I hope not, but a lot of people, I think, take it exactly like that. And I'm going to say more about that in a moment, but first, let's complicate matters even more by reading what he says next in verse 17. Do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Well, that might seem a little bit more like what we might expect the Bible to say. Or does it? <laughs> you know, if you look more closely at what he wrote, you might just think, wait, wait, wait just a minute here. What does he mean by not being over wicked? Why doesn't he just say, don't be wicked? Is he hinting maybe again that a little bit of evil in your life is okay? Just don't embrace too much of it because too much of it will likely get you killed. Is Solomon really saying, don't be too righteous or wise because it's not good for you? Can he really be saying that too much evil will kill you but a little bit of it in your life is okay? You know, that first verse, from a New Testament perspective, seems to be making an outrageous uh, statement. And that second looks like it's supporting a shocking idea. And the next one we're going to look at now appears to cinch the case for this outrage. So let's finish uh, tying that accordion knot before we try to unravel it. Let's make things even more weird than they already are. Verse 18. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Is Solomon really saying, don't be too righteous or wise, neither be too evil. Keep a balance. Avoid both extremes. Now, if that's what he's saying, it would be hard to find a more worldly thought expressed anywhere in the Bible. I mean, Pilate's question, uh, what is truth, uh, is no more offensive than this. And Festus's outburst against Paul, uh, his, belief, his belief in the resurrection and, and the judgment that follows, shouting at Paul that he must be insane, doesn't even come close. Uh, this might even rival the things Satan says as he tempts Jesus. And it certainly is on par with the conniving query when he said to Eve in the midst of their temptation, did God really say? I mean, in a nutshell, this is the world's idea about how the Christian faith ought to be practiced if you're going to be a Christian at all. Haven't you ever had somebody say to you, and it means it's been said to me, little religion is all right in its own way. Just don't be a fanatic. Yeah, and, and it's usually followed up right with, uh, with, there you go, being a fanatic again, right? So is that what really 
that really what Solomon is saying here? Well, that's what I want to answer this morning. That's what we're going to answer. We're going to take Solomon up on his invitation. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Solomon invited us to think together with him about these things. So let's do just that. Let's begin by asking this question. Can you be too righteous? Is that possible? Now, if we were a church that um, spoke out loud and answered the pastor back, I would hope we'd hear a lot of shouts of no. But in any case, before anyone answers that in their heart, remember this, Jesus himself was without sin. And remember that we are called, even if we can't live up to it, we are called to be perfect like our Heavenly Father. And remember, too, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. He gives us the power to put to death the sin in our lives. And we're commended in Colossians to do that very thing. Now, I know we fail at that all the time. I know. I know it all too well. But it shouldn't be for lack of trying or from any acceptance by us of sin in our lives. The overwhelming idea that comes across in the New Testament and indeed all of the Bible is there is no tolerance at all for sin. There is only forgiveness. And that's, of course, why Christ came. He died so we could be forgiven and so that we would turn from our sin. He does not intend that you and I should keep a little bit of sin in our lives as some kind of a pet. So if, if, it, if it doesn't mean, if it cannot be too righteous, what, what does Solomon mean by that term, over-righteous? Well, well, let me give you a, a hyphenated word to substitute here that will begin to make sense of it all, I think, and the word is self-righteous. Solomon is saying this, don't be self-righteous. That's what's meant by being over-righteous. Over-righteous sounds odd to us, I know, because it's, it's an idiom. But self-righteous would sound just as odd to Solomon because it, too, is jargon. He might think, oh, of course myself has to be righteous. Who else could be? What other way is there? So Solomon isn't saying we can be too righteous. He is warning us against self-righteousness. I used to sail on the, on the oil tankers, and I've told you this story before about the first engineer that I sailed with. He was in his 60s, and I was in my 20s. I wasn't a believer at that time, and he was, I think. <laughs> but he was a legalist. He was self-righteous, and I worked for him. And all the people he worked for, they, they didn't like being around him. He would follow you around. He'd sneak around in the engine rooms, you know, when he was supposed to be sleeping and off duty. And he'd be watching for you to do something wrong. And he'd find it and he'd pounce on you. And if he could get you to do it, he'd get you into his room and he'd open up the Old Testament and start telling you all the things that you did wrong, right? He got me there once. Never again. He was self-righteous. And nobody on the ship wanted to be around him. They called him Father Ryan, and it was not a term of endearment. 
Jesus gives us maybe the best picture of an over-righteous person. When he, when he told of the Pharisee and the tax collector, each praying separately, of course, in the temple, the tax collector could hardly look toward heaven. He was consumed with grief over his sin. He pleaded for mercy, and he was heard. And while the Pharisee, well, he boasted to God about how wonderful he was. And he actually had the gall to thank God that he wasn't like other people, like that tax collector that was near him, whose prayers God did hear. Self-righteousness is an ugly thing, and it is hated, and rightly so, by the lost world. And I think they're in good company for that, because God himself hates it too. Solomon says, don't be self-righteous, and we agree with him. And now I think maybe we have a key to understand what he meant by the term overwise. That also is a figure of speech. And l- let me give you another hyphenated word to substitute here. And that's know-it-all. <laughs> Solomon's saying, don't be a know-it-all. Uh, when I graduated from seminary, I uh, went to work uh, on a construction, a commercial construction bo- job, uh, putting up an eight-wing, uh, eight-story wing on a hospital. And we had an overwise guy on the job. And you could be digging a hole with a shovel. And he would come by and he would tell you, that's not the way to do it. And he would take that shovel from you. He'd do a couple of scoops. He'd hand you the shovel back and he'd say, there, that's the way you do it. And he'd walk away from you. He lived for that. It's a shovel. It's a hole in the ground. How much finesse can there really be? You know, know-it-alls don't really know it all, do they? They only think they do. They think so highly of themselves that they are blind to reality. Just like the self-righteous person isn't really righteous, they just pretend to be. Or what is maybe even worse, they deceive themselves into thinking that they're not only just okay, but they're examples that ought to be followed. Solomon warns us against being either one of those things. And with that as a basis, we can now look at the next verse. And let's begin by reading it. Do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Now, there are two commands uh, in verse 17, and we're going to look at each of them. Uh, but first, let's just look a look at, uh, take a look at the conclusion of verse 17, where Solomon asked this question, why die before your time? The implication here is that certain commandments, if you break them, will hasten your death. And there's a lot going on uh, in this verse, and we're going to take a little bit of time right now and um, talk about that. But after hearing that implication I just stated, you, you might think that God would strike a person down almost immediately because of certain sins. And yet, I think you'd be wrong uh, to draw that conclusion. Now, if you remember from last week, Solomon made the observation that sometimes the wicked live long in their wickedness. And though Solomon didn't address that, we did. We said that God is patient. He's patient with the wicked because he is not just putting an end to evil. I mean, he could do that in a heartbeat. But then the heartbeat of all humankind would cease because if he ended evil, we would have to end too because of the sin that's in us. Rather, God is doing something much harder. He's redeeming men and women and children from the sin which is in them. 
So God is patient with the sinful. He defers judgment in order to draw them with love and kindness to himself. Now that's the first thing we need to understand, that God is at work in our world redeeming people. And then we ought to be aware of the biblical teaching that the length of our days is already determined before we were born. Psalm 139, 16 says this, uh, Your eyes saw my unformed body, all, uh, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And yet that passage only gives us a part of the truth. And I just love the way the Bible reveals these truths, these, these kind of beautiful pearls. You find one over here and you, you find another one over there and you bring them together and you kind of string them together and they form this striking necklace of grace and truth because another one of those pearls tells us that the way you and I live affects the length of our days. So Proverbs 10.27 says, The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. And so for reasons known only to God, which we ought to know are good because God is good and he is doing good and he's bringing about ultimate good in our world and he's committed to the redemption of the lost above all things, that God has ordained a certain number of days for each person. That's you and that's me. But each person can lengthen or shorten them by the way they live. See, that's the reality that the Bible describes, though it's far beyond our ability to comprehend it all. And and all of this brings us to this understanding. There are certain, let's call them, ways of living which so harden your heart that if you don't turn from them, your heart becomes impervious to work of God's Holy Spirit. It's in that sense that someone can die before their time. I believe there are dead men walking all around us. You and I don't know who they are, and some whom we think are dead may yet come to Christ, and others who we may think aren't so bad, maybe they died long ago. Only God knows those things. All of our attempts to figure them up are rebuffed in God's wisdom. So God is at work in our world, redeeming individual people, men, women, children. And in his wisdom, he has adjourned a certain length of days for each of us that we can shorten or lengthen by the way we live. But certain ways of living hasten spiritual death as well as shortening physical life. And the last thing to say about that warning at the end of verse 17 is I think it echoes the warning in verse 16, and it applies there too. You you shorten your life. You're embracing death if you're self-righteous or a know-it-all or a fool or if you're over-wicked. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at those two commands in verse 17 so we can understand what they really mean. The second one, where Solomon says not to be a fool, I think it's the easier one to talk about, so we're going to start with it. That Hebrew word translated fool in our English Bibles does not just mean a silly person. It doesn't just mean someone who doesn't think before we act. That's how we use the word. But in the Old Testament, it refers to, as the footnotes in, in many of your Bibles will say, as someone who is morally deficient. 
Not that such a person is born without a moral compass. It's far from that. The foolish person knows the moral law, but he or she tries not to know it. And I bet you know what I'm talking about. You see, I think most of us, at some times in our life, wanting some certain thing, which we really knew was not good, we've kind of closed our eyes and our ears in order to get it. Haven't we? I know I have. We've ignored that voice that says, don't do that, you know it's wrong. But we've done it anyway. Oh, not in everything, just this one thing. And we, and we can still say, and we still know that it's wrong. And we would warn our children off of it, wouldn't we? Yet we cannot continue with impunity to ignore that inner voice and closing our eyes and ears. At some point, your heart will change. You will lose the real knowledge of what you're doing, and you won't hear that voice anymore. And then the change won't be limited. It'll no longer be just this one thing. It'll affect every part of your being. And you'll have become a fool in the way that the Bible means that word. In all likelihood, you'll still be a good businessman or carpenter or doctor, and yet in the places where it really matters, in your relationship and with eternal things, you will be drying up and dying inside. The party animals that we've known. Unless they find Christ and repent, they become empty and hollow. And if you're old enough, you've seen it. And if you haven't lived very long yet, I'm telling you, you will see it. For, for a while, for a short time, your friends and acquaintances seem to be having a good time. Yet the day's coming when all the so-called fun is gone and all that remains is an empty hole which is always being fed and is never filled. And it's a sad end that Solomon warns us to avoid. Proverbs says this about the fool. Though you grind, him in a, uh, grind a fool in a mortar, grinding them like grain with a pestle, you will not remove their folly from them. The only hope they have is in Christ. Only he can deliver them. And the second commandment is a, is a little more difficult to understand and much darker. Solomon warns us against being over wicked. And we might suspect that, as with the other two words combined with over, uh, which we've already looked at in verse 16, this is another figure of speech, and I think we'd be right in that. So let me put it this way. All people are sinners, yeah. We, we know that. We know that both from the teaching of the Scriptures and from our own experience. But this points to something beyond that. Solomon is warning us against choosing and continuing committing to a course of evil. This isn't the fool who's trying to wink at evil, who's trying not to see it. This is a person who knows that he or she is doing evil and accepts that fact and who decides to do it anyway, who embraces it. Their conscience might even be at first screaming at them, this is wrong. But they, they don't listen. They don't pay attention. They even know that there are consequences, but none of that matters. They have set their heart on an evil course, and they intend to follow it through. 
So the murderer who kills in cold blood, who plots and plans and carries out the deed is such a person. It doesn't matter very much what the motive is, whether it's for revenge or to get someone out of the way or, or, or to get some, out of some situation to eliminate a witness. It's all darkness. And those committed to a life of crime, like the mafias of the uh, different ethnicities or the drug cartel, they don't care that they destroy people's lives. They embrace it as a cost of doing business. They disdain their victims and really any of those who don't join them in dissipation. And they think of them as chumps and suckers who deserve to be defrauded and hustled and laughed at. Proverbs says of those people that these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. And, and we could list more things like that, couldn't we? I mean, the child molester, the rapist, the thief, the abortionist. But being over wicked isn't, it's not limited to the extremes. Let me give you an example as the saying goes, might be closer to home. Do you know what over-wickedness our culture is most, to engage, most apt to engage in? Sexual sin. Uh, of all kinds. And I'm not even going to list them for you. You ought to know what they are. I mean, they're bombarded with them daily. It hasn't always been that way. It's not that way in many places in our world today. In our own past in this country, not all that long ago, really, as a nation, we were, can I put it this way, we were sexually sane. I mean, we, we struggled to do right, but we succeeded more often we, than we failed. And when we failed, we knew it and we repented. Yeah, there's always been those people who are utterly immoral in this area, and yes, Everyone experiences temptation. I mean, it's the rare individual who doesn't. But it is absolutely a lie out of the pit of hell that says we cannot help ourselves. There is common grace to overcome that kind of sin, even for the unbeliever. And as a culture, we have but all but lost our way. Things that weren't even spoken about publicly. And no, not because we were prudes nor backward thinking, but for respect for the innocent and for those who are struggling with the sin. Those same things are now paraded down Main Street. And, and, and like the fool, we become blind, and our blindness is so profound that we hardly see or we won't admit the results which arise out of this sin. The broken families which litter our society. Men who will throw over their wives without a bit of compunction and no concern for what it will do to their children. The disadvantage it puts them at. The obstacles it places in their pay. And women who are quickly making themselves equal in this category too. And abortion. Which eliminates an immediate problem of pregnancy. And introduces a lifetime of regret which our society won't even talk about. It's become, in reality, just another 
even more terrible way of subjugating the female. And as a society, we're blind and we don't see it. There, there's a darkness over our nation, a darkness that can be felt, but which for the most part is ignored. Our only hope as a nation is revival. Now that's the way, it is. That's, that's our reality, but you and I, we don't have to walk that path. And now we're going to come to uh, our very last verse today, verse 18, which I think uh, has suddenly become a little bit more intelligible in light of what we've talked about. We read this. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Embrace both these truths. Solomon says, don't be self-righteous or know-it-all. Don't be a fool or, or, or embrace evil. Whoever fears God will avoid all those extremes. You and I can put it this way. Keep to the narrow path. Keep to the narrow path. It's there on that path that you will find freedom and escape the embrace of death. Now I just want to share a few final thoughts with you um, on this passage. Um, the only hope the over-wicked has, or the fool, or the self-righteous, or the know-it-all, the only hope they have is salvation, which comes in Christ Jesus. But then he is the only hope that anyone has. You and I, I wish I could say it were different, but you and I are no better than they are. If we've escaped the trap it's only by God's grace. Not God can save the murderer and the mafia kingpin. He can save the fool and the self-righteous and the know-it-all. He can save you. If you turn to him, if you trust in him, if you're willing to let go of your sin and come to him for mercy. And if, after hearing any of this today... If you feel any guilt or sorrow or concern or worry, then I want you to know that's a good thing because it means that your heart's not too hard yet. You can still change. It's the people who don't care who have the most to worry about. And yet, you know, it's not too late for even them if they will turn and call on God. We live in an ever-darkening world. But the light still shines. It's a beacon in the darkness. It's leading the lost to the one safe haven. To the arms of Jesus Christ. And you stand in his stead. You are the light of the world and the best hope of the lost. The table in front of us represents that light. It's where we who belong